And good morning to you. I am uh, Dave Mitchell, and I work here and uh, along with a lot of other people. So it's good to be with you as we worship together and uh, look to the Lord. Happy birthday, America, right? This is the weekend, so thanks for being part of the uh, service. Thanks for uh, not everybody going away, and so we have a few of us to worship together here this morning. We're in a great series called Living Free, and we were in Set Free up to Romans 1 through 11, and then we have transferred to Living Free because it's the practical stuff of Romans 12 through 16. And this morning, I want to talk about living free in a dark world. Let me read the text and set it up there in a minute. But Romans chapter 13, if you have your Bibles or the Bible in the chair rack in front of you, and occasionally we have folks who do not have a Bible at all, and we encourage you free of charge, take the Bible that's in the chair rack in front of you. That's your Bible to take home. But in Romans chapter 13, verse 11, we read this from the Apostle Paul as he challenges us to live free in a very dark world. He says, Do this knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone. The day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in jealousy and uh, strife, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. And so Paul is challenging us as he challenged the Roman citizen those days. And because it is uh, the 4th of July, I wanted to illustrate this whole thing of living as the armor of light in a very darkened world. And so I have in my hand the handy-dandy Bic, and I have a sparkler. And so this is our tribute to America. This is our celebration. We're so thankful for this country. And uh, as I learned, it takes a while for these... uh, Wedding. Oh, there we go. Isn't that nice? Happy birthday, America. It's okay when it's light. Imagine what it's like when the room gets dark. There's an amazing phenomenon that doesn't this draw our attention even more? Isn't it uh, more uh, profound and uh, glowing in a darkened world? Imagine that you and I are to be the armor of light to those that are around us. Now imagine this even more so. What if everybody in this room had one of these sparklers as well? i got about three more if you'd like to try it. But if everybody in this room had one of these sparklers and lit it up, we would practically uh, spread the light and cease to have darkness in this room. That would be powerful influence. And what God is going to convict us of, I hope, I pray, certainly convicted me, I hope it spreads to beyond me, is that God would have all of us to be a light in a darkened world, and the lighter we live our life with the armor of light of Christ, the less darkness there is in the world. And so this morning we want to emphasize this whole area of living free in a darkened world by being the light of Christ. I'm going to throw this out there, and let's see who can catch it. No. I actually have a handy-dandy little... Oops. That burned carpet will come out of Eric Wakeling's salary. So, (laughs) And so this morning, how to be that kind of a light, how to live free in a darkened world. And we do live in a darkened world. I'm going to emphasize that in just a moment. But let me just challenge us as we get into the text. There's an outline that is available for you there. 
and we encourage you to follow along. In fact, it looks exactly like the one on my hand. It's easier to read yours than mine up here. And so we encourage you to have that and have it handy to you as we look at living free. There are three things that Paul wants us to see in this particular text. How do you live free? How do you become the armor of light in the world? The first principle that he gives to us is this, and I'll show you the text in a moment. But here's the point. We need to be alert to the needs and the issues of the world because the end is coming. We need to be alert to the needs and the issues of the world because the end is coming. The emphasis of Paul is this verse. Do this knowing the time, that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone, the day is near. That's where he begins. He begins with this journey, he says, I want you to know the time. And he says, the, the salvation, the salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. And he's not talking about the fact that a lot of us are closer to death and some of us are closer to death than others by virtue of age and statistics. But he's also emphasizing maybe even more so the fact that the Apostle Paul had this tremendous burden that Christ is coming back soon. He was not shy about prophecy. He taught prophecy a lot. That Christ had died, he had been resurrected, he saw the resurrected Jesus, and he knew he's coming back, and he thought maybe he's coming back soon. In fact, 2,000 years later, it's sooner than even when Paul said that. So here is the emphasis that Paul wants us to have, to understand the times in which we live. He said this also over in 1 Thessalonians. He says, Now as to the times and the epics, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. The Apostle Paul was very precise. He had prophecy conferences in Thessalonica. To the Thessalonians he wrote, I want you to understand the end times. I want you to understand the scenario of all that's taking place. He goes on to explain why. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like the thief in the night. While they're saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like birth pangs upon a woman with child and they shall not escape. Paul says there's a lot of people that are going to be living in the end times and they're going to be saying peace and safety. They're going to be saying things are okay. They're going to be saying, I don't need to worry about end times. I don't need to be worried about the future. I don't even need to worry about what the headlines are, the newspaper. I don't need to worry about what government's doing, what the Supreme Court's deciding. I just need to be able to get a job. I need to be able to live my life. I need to be able to pay for a mortgage. I need to have children. I need to be able to live it out. Those are good things, but the Apostle Paul is emphasizing, I don't want you to be so consumed with the daily needs of this, that, and the other thing that are important to us, but I want you to see beyond that. I don't want you to be surprised by saying peace and safety and suddenly the end times are upon us and I didn't even know it. Because the end times that come upon those who are saying peace and safety is like being asleep in your bed and suddenly there's a thief standing in your bedroom and you wake up and it's panic time. What am I going to do about the thief in my bedroom? Because thieves come, as Paul says here, when we don't expect it. God says, I don't want my children to be caught unaware. I want you to be alert. I want you to know the times and the epics. I want you to be able to see the scenario. I want you to see the fingerprints of God in the history of mankind. That's what God is challenging us to. So he concludes the passage with this. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, that the day should overtake you like a thief, for you are all sons of light and sons of day. We live as light. We we dispense with the darkness. And if you live as light, then you know what God is doing. You're in control. You have this, this sort of a stability and confidence. Not to arrogance, but a confidence that I'm part of God's plan. I'm His child. He's working His will through me. 
And I'm living as light in a world that is saying things are okay, but God says, no, they're not. Be alert to what's going on. One of the great passages from the Old Testament that God, God commends the sons of Issachar. Why does He commend the sons of Issachar? Because they are men who understood the times and they knew what Israel should do. God says, I want you to be alert to the end times, knowing the time, times and epics. Understand the times so you know what to do. You know how to respond. You have a sense of what God is doing. Not that we understand everything that He's doing, but we have a sense that God is in control and the end times are going to come. And I want to be aware of what those indicators are of end times. If you'd like to understand better, in light of the fact that the end times may be near, I've given you a whole bunch of verses on the back side that shows the emphasis of those things that God would have us to do if we care about the fact that the end times may be near. Specifically, Scripture teaches a lot about that. But today we live in a day where we need to know the times in which we live. Washington, D.C., the Capitol building, U.S. Capitol building. I was back there about a month ago. And this is the U.S. Capitol building. You probably saw it if you watched any of the fireworks show on TV. There was a bunch of people standing on those steps right there. There was a day when our country was being founded, and this goes to our 4th of July emphasis, way back in the 1600s. There was a king by the name of King James I. King James I has a decree in the land of England. And the decree is this, that every person is to worship in the church of England. And if you don't worship in the church of England in a span of 40 days, if we find out that you haven't been to the church of England for 40 days, then we will throw you into prison. Sometimes I think that's such not a bad idea. But can you imagine living where the government where the president of the land, the Congress, passes laws, that if you don't come and worship the way we want you to worship in the church that we want you to worship in, that if you don't do it in a span of 40 days, we're going to throw you into prison. That's what you call an autocratic totalitarian government that is controlling even the faith that we hold so dearly. Well, King James I passed that law, and there was a group of people that lived in that land. Some of them were called Puritans. The Puritans said, we will remain, we will fight the battle, we will be the light of Christ, we will do what we can to maintain our faith, even though we're so restricted by the top-town government. But then there were another group of people called separatists, who later we call pilgrims. And they said, we're not going to stand still for this. You're not going to take away our exercise of the freedom of our faith to worship our God as we would choose, to practice our religion as Scripture teaches and guides us. Well, we're living in a day and age where the government is trying to control our faith to certain measures. We saw that over the last couple of weeks, and hopefully you are one who understands the times in which we live. The Supreme Court lets stand a ruling where judge decided that licensed therapists cannot convince minors who have homosexual desires that they receive therapy to change their desire and their behavior. That ruling might have been lost under the Hobby Lobby thing. But according to my reading of those things that have come across in the news to understand the times in which we live, 
we have now the Supreme Court telling people of faith who practice as licensed therapists that they are prohibited from speaking about their faith to homosexuals who are minors so as to convince them how they can change their behavior. That's top-down control of what I believe and how I should practice my faith in areas of morality that are important to me. Hobby Lobby decision that came down because the Hobby Lobby owned by a private families who have a Christian faith and their Christian faith told them that abortion is sinful and they will not pay for others having abortions. There are three, four devices and pills that would cause abortions in a woman and they said we will not pay for that even if it costs us hundreds of millions of dollars to be fined. They bring it all the way to the Supreme Court Justice in just the last week. Five of the justices decided that Hobby Lobby may exercise their faith and have freedom to do so, and we will not force them to pay for those devices and pills that they believe cause abortions. Of course, it's spun that they don't want to have contraceptives for women, but it's just four devices out of 20 that they refuse to pay for because they cause abortions. I hope that you and I who are followers of Jesus don't believe the spin that it's a war on women. Don't believe the spin that they're against contraceptives. But understand the times in which we live that they have a freedom of their faith to exercise and that five justices out of the Supreme Court have said, yes, we'll let you have that freedom. But if one justice had gone the other way, then Hobby Lobby would be forced or fined if they didn't pay for devices and pills that kill babies once they have become a child in the womb. Now, that's the government. That's just the last couple of weeks. Understanding the times in which we live. I recognize that I'm one of the five people in Orange County that actually reads the paper anymore. Uh, and I'll say that in any proud way, but I just know a lot of people just don't read. They don't read the news. They're not aware of the times. I'm just begging us who are followers of Jesus. If we want to be a light in a darkened world, we need to know where the darkness is. Not to turn us into a theocracy. Not to force everybody to be baptized in the church. That's not what we're talking about. But to have an exercise of our faith of light that brings Christ to those that need hope. That's what we want to do. Well, way back in 1600s, they were having this crisis of faith as well. As King James, top down, said, here's where you worship, here's how you worship. Anybody that doesn't do it this way, I'm throwing you in jail. Well, there's a group of separatists that says we won't stand for that. And we now call them pilgrims. And they decided to leave England. They went to Holland. And there they left on the Mayflower ship to settle here. Plymouth is what they called the city. If you go to the Capitol Rotunda, in that particular rotunda, in fact, how many have many been to the Capitol Rotunda in that little room there? Okay. If you walk around there, a lot of amazing artwork. We look at them and say, well, it's different kind of clothes they wore in those days and wonder what that's all about. And you see all these scenes playing out. Well, to the left there, where you see right in the middle of the rotunda, to the left is one piece of artwork there. And that piece of artwork tells a bit of the story of some of those pilgrims, as they became known, and that word pilgrim came out of Hebrews. That's where uh, William Bradford coined the term, we are pilgrims, based on Hebrews as the pilgrims of our faith. 
And it is the story of John Robinson. John Robinson is the man that is standing there with his arms like this, standing there in Holland because he was planning to come with them later, but his health prevented that. And as he stood there with them, he wrote these pilgrims, these separatists, a letter. And in that letter, he challenged them as they go to understand why they are going to where they're going, to America. In that letter, he wrote this. And first, as we are daily to renew our repentance with our God, especially for our sins and occasions of such difficulty and danger lieth upon you, to a both more narrow search and careful reformation of your ways in His sight. And again, the way they write, it's a little cumbersome for us today, but notice this next paragraph. Lastly, whereas you are become a body politic, using amongst yourselves civil government, and are not furnished with any persons of special eminency above the rest, no kings in a land of America, nobody's better than anybody else, in terms of their standing, to be chosen by you into office of government. So they were coming to establish a new government here in America. And here is his advice to them in the establishing and the choosing of those who would serve. Let your wisdom and godliness appear. Use your minds. Think it through. Understand the times. Have a knowledge of those things that need to be chosen. Those people that I should choose. What do they stand for? What are they going to promote? How are they going to rule? Who are they going to put to the judges of the superior court, the supreme court? What are they going to be doing? I need to use my wisdom and I need to use godliness. I want to understand the values that God has. As a person who wants to be the light of Christ, who bears the armor of light, I want to oppress the darkness that is out there. I can't turn us into the church, no. But I sure can do what I can do in wisdom and godliness, in the promotion of those things that God would be honored with not only in choosing such persons as do entirely love and will promote the common good, but also in yielding unto them all due honor and obedience in their lawful administrations. That's the heart of what that portrait that stands in the Capitol Rotunda that at one time was a place of worship for the uh, early settlers of America, that's what that artwork is portraying. This appeal this desire, so that as the pilgrims traveled across, not all of them were believers, but for those that were believers on that Mayflower and the Mayflower Compact was signed, this is what they wrote because this was what was on their mind. Having undertaken for the glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith and the honor of our king and country, a voyage to plant the first colony in the northern parts of Virginia, and they called it Plymouth, do by these presents solemnly and mutually in the presence of God and one another, covenant and combine ourselves together into a civil body politic. This is the first church plant in America. These pilgrims came from England to Holland to America to advance Christianity. Did everything go well? Was every believer walking the way we would want them to walk? Was every founding so-called father of our country a person who could agree with our doctrinal statement here at Calvary Church? No. But one thing is clear, that if you go to the U.S. Capitol Rotunda and you walk amongst those beautiful artwork, that beautiful artwork, where politicians will stroll, where they will be interviewed, where they're making decisions for our country, please know that the heritage and the heart of many who came 
is caught up in the words of this compact that is probably not taught as much as we would like for it to for children and teens who are being educated today that there was a passion for the advancement of Christianity not a Christian nation but a Christ-centered emphasis in all that they did that's where our country came from 1620 way before the Independence Day but those are the people those are some of the hearts that God had somehow put his hand upon to sustain them so that we enjoy freedoms that are today, that are written down, the Bill of Rights and our Constitution. This was the heart that they had. These are freedoms that they wanted for us here uh, hundreds and hundreds of years later. And so God has given to us that so that we would understand the times in which we live. That's Paul's emphasis. Be alert, knowing the time, understand the issues so that I can exercise my faith in a reasonable way that dispenses the darkness of a fallen world. Be the light of Christ wherever we go. This fall we're going to be voting. I pray that you vote with wisdom and godliness behind it as John Robinson, the pastor, would have said. Also in that portrait was John Carver, who was the first governor in the land that we know today as the United States of America. Now Paul moves on to his second point, and it is this. I need to behave properly by putting aside the deeds of darkness. Here's what he says. In Romans 12, 13, 12 and 13, he says, Therefore, lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light, Let us behave properly as in the day. Behave properly. Now here's what I don't want to say. Here's what I do not want anybody listening to walk away with. Behave properly. Oh yeah, I heard that. I grew up, I grew up in a community and kind of a climate of legalism. Where it was always behave properly. Do these things, do these things, don't do those things. And sort of a top down kind of way of just telling me to do right. Do the right thing. And and that's, that's right. But that's inadequate. What we don't want is a, is a belief system called moralism. Moralism is where I tell everybody, do these things and you'll be okay. So I want to behave properly, so I want to lay aside the deeds of, of darkness. Well, I just, I just don't want to do those bad things anymore. The problem is that I'm doing those things sometimes so that God will ple- be pleased with me. I want to behave properly so God will give me a family. I want to behave properly so I will have children. I want to behave properly so I'll finally have enough finances to buy a home. I want to behave properly so I'll finally find a spouse. Behave properly so I'll finally get the grades that I want. Somehow there is some sort of a karma that goes on by behaving properly, doing good, God's pleased, I get what I want. We don't want that. That's not what we're talking about. That's moralism, where I try to bend the hand of God to bless me. We don't want people to behave properly for what they get out of life. So I'm going to talk about behaving properly by putting aside these things, but then replace those things with something even better. So that's where we want to go. How do we behave properly? Here are the three areas that Paul emphasizes. These are the things that Paul warns us about. And I don't suspect that they're all news flashes for us, for most of us at least. Not in carousing and drunkenness. That's one category. Then he goes on, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality. Third, second category. But not in strife and jealousy. Now here's kind of how I want to present this. Here's, as I thought about that, what are, what are these three areas? Because he sort of lumps each two items together in one a three, one of three groups. The areas that we lay aside, and here's kind of my angle on it. It is this. Carousing and drunkenness. These are 
I believe, sort of a counterfeit power or influence that somehow I think will make my life better. That somehow by those things being an effect in my life, I've got a power or an influence that will help me sort of manage life better. And Paul says, no. You don't get rid of darkness by living with darkness. I love this proverb. It is not for kings, O Lemuel. It is not for kings to drink wine. Or for rulers to desire strong drink. For they would drink and forget what is decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. Here's my takeaway on that. And I know that some of you will not like what I am about to say. And so why should today be any different than any other Sunday? Alcohol and its influence. I recognize that there are as many of us in this room as it was first hour, as throughout our church and throughout our community that see nothing wrong with a little champagne, a little wine, with dinner. I get that. I get that completely. I'm not trying to go down that road. Next Sunday I may, but not today. What I believe the Apostle Paul is speaking to us is about is this, that I want to be the light of Christ. I want to be a light to a darkened world. I want to be a transformative person that is causing people to see Christ in me in a dynamic way that is inviting. And I sometimes fear that alcohol gets to the point where it becomes an oppressive thing, a depressive thing. We should not be drunk. All of us will agree with that, those who are biblically, you know, obedient. We don't want to get drunk. So what is drunkenness? California has determined that if I have 0.08% alcohol in my body, I'm drunk. I will be arrested. I will lose my license. I might lose my car, and it's going to cost me thousands of dollars to get all that back. That's what the government has determined. That's drunkenness. So how do I know when I'm watching a World Cup? I'm sitting there watching Costa Rica play, and I'm rooting for them, but the Dutch are too good, and, and so I need another Coors. I need a Heineken. Honey, get me a... And I began to count how many bottles I got sitting there. And that's where every believer who drinks should have a breathalyzer at home. So every so often after I've had a few after dinner or after work or I needed something to kind of calm me down, I need something to relax, you suck in that, you blow in that, I should say. And if it's more than .08, I'm off the reservation in terms of my faith. I have somehow gone off from where God would have me to be, that place of His light. I've gone into the darkness of sin. I don't want that. I remember... Some of you might remember, I, some years ago, I was with the, the police as a chaplain, and, and we were called over to the uh, rail station over here in Santa Ana. And there was a drunken man that was causing a disturbance. And so we arrived on the scene, and yeah, he was kind of out of control. And it turns out this man who was causing a disturbance had taken this train into L.A. with his friends so on his birthday he could celebrate and have to come home not drunk driver. And I say, well, that's a good thing. 
But as he got home, he was causing so much ruckus, he was carousing, is the word, carousing that Paul used. He was carousing because of so much alcohol in his system that he was out of control and they had to call the police. And he was so out of control that it took five officers and Chaplain Dave standing over him on the asphalt parking lot over here as paramedics came with the big wooden board that they put people on who were sick, who need help, put his body drunken as it was, on that board, and he was still fighting, and all of us holding down arms, legs, head, torso, keeping him there, and finally the paramedic had had enough, and he pulled out his duct tape, and he literally wrapped him up like a mummy with duct tape to keep him solid on that board, and they carted him off over here to Western Med. Turns out this guy was an executive with Ernst & Young, CPA executive account and if he could have seen himself I wish I just did a little video and sent it to him said and sent it to his boss at no I wouldn't do that at Ernst but if you see yourself and you see what alcohol does every time I see that or think about that it grieves me what alcohol can do to a person because no one starts out that way but man some end up that way we have friends of ours who's in the middle of one of the most hurtful marriages, someone we've known for all of our lives, and they are so, so much pain. And you know why there's a lot of pain? Because he is an alcoholic, and he won't admit it, but he keeps on drinking, and as soon as he drinks, he is a bear of hate. Every time I think about people and the debit... No one starts out to do that. But some end up doing that. I want to avoid that. I don't want us to be people like that. To add to it, here's a second thing that he talks about. Counterfeit love and its destructive effect. That's not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, Paul talks about. I don't want you to go there, he says. Now here is the the crazy of these two things working together. I was reading just this last week of a study that was done of college students. And they interviewed a number of women who were in this university. And one of the things that they interviewed is, how much do you drink and what's your sex life like? So they're asking these very invasive questions. And one woman really summarized it in this way. She says, look, if I have sex and I'm not drunk, then I'm a slut. If I have no sex, she said, then I'm a prude. Well, I don't want to be either of those. So here's what she said, and she represents many of these women who are in the study. She says, so therefore I get drunk, have sex, and people think it's okay because I wasn't in charge. It wasn't my fault. Alcohol had taken over. So the next morning I wake up and it's no big deal. Oh, you had sex? Really? What? Yeah, I was drunk. Oh, okay. And so they were using alcohol as the means by which to excuse the sexual immorality of their behavior. It's this convoluted thinking that goes on, this disturbed, irrational thinking that goes on, where there's this combination of these two things at work in our university campuses today, and there's a lot of folks that just don't care. And it's the darkness that when we carry the image of Christ... We're different. We are different as we go out. 
has prayed with a young woman who's going off to college this next month. And her family says, pray for her that she would walk that walk that we talked about this morning. Because if we go out there, there's influence that is taking place that can be so devastating. I love this verse. If you're being tempted by somebody at school, at work, and it's an adulterous, immoral relationship, premarital or marital, outside of marriage, sex, then here is the verse for you. Job 31.1. He says, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? When I stand firm with this truth, this verse becomes the, the, the singular most controlling verse in my life to keep me a pure and holy in terms of sexual immorality. I made a covenant with my eyes. I made a covenant with my wife. I made a covenant with her to remain pure and holy. And so how would I ever allow my eyes to gaze? Because whatever my eyes gaze on, that becomes a fixture for me. And the more I allow my eyes to gaze on someone, be it a man or a woman, depending on where you're coming from, wherever my eyes gaze, as my eyes remain there gazing, my eyes will then begin a new covenant of a new immoral behavior. If you're at work, you're at 24-hour fitness, Gold's Gym, newly refurbished Starbucks, neighborhood, wherever you are at, if your eyes are gazing on a person, and the word gaze means to discern, to look into, to find out more about. If that's where your eyes are gazing, you are ready to enter the world of darkness. God says, don't. Let that covenant with your eyes be the right spouse and no longer gaze and allow your mind to be infiltrated with thoughts and behaviors that are so destructive. And then finally, he says that there's counterfeit relationships that, that end in this way of strife and jealousy. And these all really work together. Alcohol that can lead to immorality that then creates strife and jealousy. It is this combination. It's a toxic trinity of combination of things that are so destructive to our behavior. And I think that I'm preaching to the choir on this. I hope that I am. But I remind ourselves that this is what it means to behave properly. That we put those things aside. We don't allow them to become an influence. I want to be light. I want When the world goes dark, I want to still be that light shining for Jesus Christ. But we need to replace it with something better. And it is this, to be empowered with Christ as He comes in me and gives me an ability. Let me illustrate it with this. There's an author that has written a book, and his name is David Hegg. David Hegg, I think he does counseling, but he did counseling with this one young man. This one young man had a tremendous sexual behavior of acting out with a lot of women. Repeatedly he had this. He says, the desire, he says, it's so strong, I can't stop it. I just have this constant hunger for that. And David Hegg counseled him in this way. He says, well, let's say the next time you see someone that you are now being tempted to have this relationship with, let's say I came alongside as you're contemplating that woman. Let's say I gave you $10,000. And I'll give you that $10,000 if you'd stop and not do what you're thinking of doing. Would you stop? He says, in a minute. 10000 bucks? are you kidding me? Of course I'd stop. So he says, okay, the problem is not that you have an irresistible desire. The problem is that you have a wrong desire. So I want to put on your heart a right desire. I want you to move from a desire that is evil and dark. I want you to move to a desire that is righteous and pure. 
And so that's what Paul is doing here. He says, I want you to behave properly by putting aside those things that can be so destructive to your life and then just don't leave a void. Don't, don't just put them aside and so there's this moralism of do the right thing and they have nothing and just legalism of God, I hope you are pleased with me. No, we don't want that. We want to get rid of the behavior that is improper and then say, now let me clothe myself with something new. Let me have a new power that comes into my life. A new capacity to do the right thing. A new capacity that gives me a new desire. That I have a hunger and thirst for righteousness that Jesus said in Matthew 5. I have a hunger and thirst for the things that are honoring to God. That whatever is on the heart of God, I want that. So when Christ comes in my life, I have a new capacity to do the right thing for His sake, by His power. That's the life that God calls us to. That's how we become light in a fallen or a darkened world. The Apostle Paul writes about it. He puts it in 13, 14. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. Put on Christ. Behave properly. But put on Christ. Let Him clothe you with His righteousness and you'll have no provision. There's no room. There's no hunger for those things. When Christ is controlling my life, my appetite for those things that are improper it's diminished or it's gone. God has this transforming power that He comes in my life and He changes me. And He changes what I want. He changes my desires. He changes my lifestyle. That's what He's talking about. One of the great illustrations is going way back in time. Because this verse is the verse that changed Augustine's life. The great Augustine who has written these tremendous books that we still read here, 16, 1700 years later. Just incredible. Well, Augustine had a battle when he was in his teens. He had, a, I think, something like a 13 year uh, relationship living with another woman outside of marriage. He had a child. Augustine's mom, Monica, was so distressed over that, didn't know what to do about her son, wanted him to change. And then Augustine said one day he was going along and he began to hear a voice. And a voice began to speak to him. And this is what he wrote about this situation. He says, I was saying these things and weeping in the most bitter contrition of my heart when suddenly I heard the voice of a boy or a girl, I know not which, coming from the neighboring house, chanting over and over again, pick it up, read it, pick it up, read it. And he understood the voice to be saying, pick up the Bible and read it. So he picked up the Bible. He didn't know what to read. He didn't know what to open up to. He didn't want to open up to some bizarre passage that he didn't know what to do with. So he didn't know. But he had this book in hand. And this is how he describes what happened next as he holds the Bible in his hand. So I quickly returned to the bench where Olypius was sitting. For there I had put down this apostle's book when I had left there. I snatched it up, opened it. And in silence read the paragraph on which my eyes first fell. Where did God direct his eyes? Not in rioting and drunkenness. Not in chambering or wantonness. Or that was our sensuality or sexual immorality. Not in strife or envying or jealousy as we read it. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And make no provision for the flesh. To fulfill the lusts thereof. I wanted to read no further. Nor did I need to. For instantly, as that sentence ended, there was an infused in my heart something like the light of full certainty, and all the gloom of doubt vanished away. It's Augustine. He was saved by reading this verse that we just had, Romans 13, 12, and 13. God transformed his life, and he put on Christ. And suddenly, the immorality of his life 
and the darkness of his life was transformed. That's what Christ wants to do. As we come before the Lord, here's the question you should ask me. If we're sitting down in a room right one-on-one, I've just said, you know, you need to put on Jesus Christ. Here's the one question you should ask me, and that is this. How do I put on Jesus Christ? What's that mean? Put on Jesus? Is it a jacket? Is it a coat? Is it a sweatshirt? What is it? Here is what God says. On the back side of my outline, I gave you the journey of putting on Jesus Christ. And it, based upon Colossians 3, 10 through 17, we're not going to go into detail, but as the communion is now about to be passed, I want you to see an area that you can reflect on as these elements are brought to us. The first thing that I noticed in Colossians 3 is that we need to commit to and renew an authentic intimacy with Jesus Christ because the apostle says, renewed to a true knowledge, a true knowledge of Christ. Do I really know Christ? Is He my Savior? Has He truly come into my life to cause my sins to be forgiven? Have I trusted in Him alone? That's the beginning point. Do I have a true knowledge of Him? Secondly, you view people in life through the eyes of Christ. It's a renewal in which there is no distinction. He talks about the distinctions of ethnic groups back in those days. And I begin to look at people around me in a brand new light. I no longer judge people based upon clothing and skin color and education and occupation and behavior. I just begin to look at people through the lens of Christ. So Christ, come into my life and help me to see people the way you see them. In a darkened world that I would be the light of you to them. And then he says, I want you to focus your heart on this. Every day I want to pray for compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience. I want those to be the priorities of my life so that I can renew my relationships. If you have broken relationships, maybe there's somebody you need to forgive, somebody you need to reconcile with. God says, go there. Fix that. Make it right. Because Christ is clothing you now. He's clothing you to change that. That's no longer a driving influence. And then I pray for Christ's peace. Let the peace of Christ rule. Let the word of Christ richly dwell. I let the word of Christ and his prayer life become a daily, almost every minute experience where Christ is he's dwelling in me of his word. He's dwelling, his peace is dwelling. I'm, I'm meditating constantly. He is constantly filling me afresh and new so that I can finish the mission. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. My motivation now is changed. I would ask for those who feel led to take those steps as the elements are passed. Say, God, where do you want to work in my life? What do you want to change in me? Where of that little journey of putting on Christ do I need to be for you so that I am living free in a dark world with the armor of Christ all around me. Let me pray for us. Here's an opportunity for us to respond with the elements, the bread and the cup. The bread represents the body of Jesus. The cup represents the the blood of Jesus. And and He is the one that we put on. And in His life that I live for. These elements don't put Christ in me, but these elements symbolize that I've put on Jesus. He is in my life. And if Christ is in your life, Let this element, these elements, be a realistic portrayal, symbolically, that Christ is in me, dwelling in my life. Let me pray. Father God, I thank you that you've given to us the opportunity 
to be the children that you have called us to be. Because we know we live in a world where there is darkness. Maybe some of our lives feel like we're living in darkness. Whatever it is that, God, you need to do for each of us, I pray, God, that you would do that. That you would find within each of us a submissive and yielded spirit. God, to be taught by you, to be led by you, to be encouraged by you, and now to worship you with a bread and a cup, symbolizing your precious Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, through this symbolic act, may it really reflect that we've put on Jesus Christ. We're serious about living our faith for Him. Father, we thank You for it. In Jesus' name, amen.